um, for the bottom 90%. We reject the ideology of globalism and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. My name's Jason Taylor, host of Evidence of Design. I'm also joined in the WXIR studios by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell Sup. and Mary Lawrence. Good morning. Mary, just double-checking, is my mic on? I don't Hi. hear you. You can hear me? All right. I'm not getting any volume through my headset, but there maybe either. we can figure that out throughout the show here you are coming through when you talk wonderful all right well as long as folks can hear me that's great i can't hear myself i'm sick of hearing myself so you know what that's all right it's saturday i'm sick of hearing you too yeah (laughs) you can mary you can mute me (laughs) it's saturday march 6th turning jason's mic off 21 (laughs) so we are live folks if it's saturday march 6th for you too then we're all in the same plane. That's all good stuff. That means you can participate in today's show in your local grassroots community radio station. There are several ways for you to do that. Easiest way, perhaps, is by giving us a call. 585-219-8889. 585-219-8889. You can also get in touch with us through our social media handles at Radio EOD and via email at Radio EOD at gmail.com. What might you participate about today? Well, on today's show, we are talking about efforts again to raise the minimum wage and also some studies that are showing promising results from some small-scale efforts at providing a universal basic income for folks. So we're talking about raising the minimum wage and universal basic income on today's show of Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Again, we'd love to hear from you, 585-219-8889. Two weeks ago, we also covered raising the minimum wage. Why are we covering it again? Because the fight, of course, still continues, and there have been more recent developments in at least the federal effort to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Just uh, yesterday, I believe, as of the airing of the show, the Senate voted down an effort to overrule the Senate parliamentarian in an effort to get the uh, (laughs) minimum wage provision included in the $1.9 trillion stimulus package so that that could be passed in Congress. Golly, that is a mouthful because we're sort of talking about inside baseball here in politics, 
But many Americans this week found out, including myself, found out what the Senate parliamentarian is. Yes, exactly. Like, who's the Senate parliamentarian? So let's back up just one second. Of course, Democrats are in control of the executive branch in the government. Joe Biden is president. He's a Democrat. Democrats also have a relatively small majority in the House of Representatives, one half of the legislative branch. And Democrats have the literal narrowest majority possible in the Senate. By majority, I mean it's technically a tie with a 50-50 split, 50 Democrats to 50 Republicans. But because of what's stipulated in the Constitution, if there is a tie vote in the Senate, then the vice president can cast the decisive vote. And of course, because Kamala Harris is vice president, that likely means she'll side with her Democratic colleagues meaning Democrats kind of in a practical effect have the majority. So now that Democrats have a majority in the executive branch and the legislative branch, although a very, very narrow one, a very tenuous one, there have been efforts to raise the minimum wage. A big push right now in the Biden administration is to pass the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. That includes something to the effect of $1,400 payments to most Americans. It includes expanding unemployment benefits. It includes state and local government aid. It also was originally supposed to include an effort to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour on a national scale. This was primarily pushed by Senator uh, Bernie Sanders, who also ran for president, of course, in 2016 and 2020. And the, it was called the Raise the Wage Act. And the goal would be to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. And that would be the first time that the federal government would raise the minimum wage in over 10 years. In the history of the minimum wage in the United States, we have experienced the longest period in history of the minimum wage not being increased. And so this would be an effort to raise the minimum wage so that some 32 million Americans could receive money that would allow them to live more easily based off the work they do. Right, because the minimum wage increase won't only affect people who make minimum wage, but will also affect everyone who makes anything between the minimum wage and currently $15 an hour. Right, so anywhere between, in theory, $7.25 to $15 an hour. As such, you get around 32 million Americans, apparently. Sounds and great. I think it's yep. worth it's just worth pointing out, like we've done on the show before, but, you know, it bears repeating that if the minimum wage had kept up with the uh, GDP over the years, it would minimum wage would be $24 an hour right now. So this is even, like, all that radical of a number to begin with, and honestly, it should probably be even higher than it is. I personally agree with you, Matt, and we'll definitely get to those perspectives throughout the hour, but you're totally right. The fight for 15 has been going on for a long time, as it's known, and there are some folks who say 15 ain't even high enough <laughs> you know, because, uh, because of things like inflation and because of things like tying the minimum wage to productivity, and we will cover those perspectives throughout the show. For now, to continue with a little bit of our background... It sounds good, right, to raise the minimum wage, all fine and dandy. Well, the problem is that Republicans don't want to do that. They don't believe in raising the minimum wage uh, for whatever reason they say, right? They could argue that 
Uh, it would cost jobs. They could argue that people don't deserve to make that money if they're working a minimum wage job. They could argue that it would promote people to be to not work at all or some perverse thing. I don't know. Like, regardless, the point is Republicans, um, in my opinion, are morally and intellectually bankrupt. What they believe is that poor people should die. Yeah, I mean, uh, they certainly, yeah, Republicans are not helpful for the material interests of the vast majority of Americans. And they are fine, whether, um, you know, purposefully, specifically, or just, you know, willingly, haphazardly, of letting poor people suffer. And so... Um, Republicans do not support raising the minimum wage, and therefore, uh-oh, that's an issue in getting this thing passed. Now, because of the narrowest majority possible in the, in the Senate, 50-50 split, you need all Democrats to vote in favor of it. Which they didn't. Yes. So normally in the Senate, because of what's known as the filibuster, you need to have at least 60 votes to get something to pass. That's not going to happen when you don't have a single Republican senator who wants to vote to increase the minimum wage. So therefore, Democrats are trying to pass both the COVID-19 relief bill and, by extension, the minimum wage increase through what's known as the filibuster pro- or sorry, the uh, reconciliation process. Uh, we don't need to go into the nitty-gritties of that, but essentially it's a budgetary process in the Senate that would allow something to pass... With a simple majority. With a simple majority. So 51 votes, essentially. So, sounds great, right? Democrats have the power to do that. Well, the problem is, is that since we held a show on this two weeks ago, someone known as the Senate parliamentarian voted to say, or gave an opinion saying that the minimum wage increase could not be part of of the reconciliation process. It didn't meet whatever eligibility requirements there were to use the reconciliation process. And therefore, as sort of like a referee in the Senate, this unelected official, she was saying that you could not sort of, I guess, legally or in good faith, at least, you could not in good faith pass this through the reconciliation process. Optics are bad. (laughs) Doesn't look good. Doesn't look good. So essentially saying, sorry, Democrats, you can't do this with 50-50. You're going to need to get at least some Republicans on board. You're going to need to at least get Kamala Harris to vote for it, too. Yes, and at least Kamala Harris. But it doesn't matter. You're not even going to get there. You're not even going to get the 50 votes to get Kamala Harris to break the tie. You need at least Republican senators on board, which isn't going to happen. And so what? Why? So what, now we catch up back to the present with this history here. Thanks for abiding with your attention. Is that... Uh, the Senate just voted yesterday, as of the date of this recording, to to, to uh, vote on whether or not they wanted to overrule the Senate parliamentarian. To say, look, okay, this unelected official can say that we can't include it as the as the uh, in the in the reconciliation process. But you know what? She doesn't she doesn't literally have power as senators. We constitutionally, by the mandate of the people who voted us in, have power. And in the past, the Senate parliamentarian has been overruled. And the senators have the power to overrule the Senate parliamentarian, technically. And so they voted whether or not to overrule the Senate parliamentarian. And all 50 Republican senators, as it wasn't a surprise, voted not to overrule the parliamentarian. But what might be a surprise to some folks is that eight Senate Democrats 
joined with the Republicans to not overrule the parliamentarian too, meaning minimum wage increase is not going to happen for the foreseeable future. These eight Senate Democrats were who voted with the Republicans not to essentially pass federal minimum wage increases for 32 million Americans were Joe Manchin, West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema, Arizona, Angus King, Maine, Tom Carper, Delaware, Chris Coons, Delaware, John Tester, Montana, Gene Shaheen, best name ever, New Hampshire, and Maggie Hassan, New Hampshire. Cowards. And just to be clear, this was in order to not raise the minimum wage immediately, but to raise it gradually by 2025. Right. When the minimum wage will need to be like $35 an hour. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) It's all about waiting as long as possible until things become, you know, just impossible to ignore. You know, just out of curiosity, (laughs) were there comments, like, did either of you see comments from any of these senators as to why they voted against it? Was it just because they didn't think it should be conflated with this particular relief package? I know Joe Manchin doesn't believe in, like, the minimum wage anyway, but I I haven't heard it from any of the other ones. It's like Santa Claus. It doesn't exist. (laughs) Well, at at least for Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who are widely seen as the most moderate Democrats and therefore the hardest to win over on many of the arguably most progressive or I guess you could say humanitarian (laughs) efforts by the Democrats. The ones most infatuated with the idea of just slaughtering a, a large percentage of the population. Yeah, they uh, they have publicly said that they might not support raising the federal minimum wage to $15 at all. Yeah, so, no, I know I know. Joe Manchin isn't in favor of it, yeah. Right, so it, it wasn't even clear if they could get a 50-50 vote, right. whether or not they would get that. But when it comes to the vote that we're talking about with the parliamentarian, um, m- to be clear, the vote was on whether or not to overrule the parliamentarian, not to institute a $15 minimum wage, right. although by extension, one could logic it out that that's what would happen. Uh, most of the senators have come out and said, you know, we believe in the integrity of the Senate and the checks and balances, and, and we want to adhere by uh, this uh, the customs of having the Senate parliamentarian rule what is allowable and what is not allowable. So it was sort of copying out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the most conservative-sounding argument that you could put forward. It's like, oh, we don't... We're not, it's not that we're against welfare. It's just that uh, we need to get the deficit down. It's like, yeah. no, you're against welfare because you just spent a trillion dollars on your stealth bomber plane. That doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's also interesting considering, uh, I know you've mentioned this already, but the Senate parliamentarian is not voted into office. So it's yeah. interesting that they would be supporting the ruling of someone who is not actually a Democratic entity. Yeah, I mean, the Senate like Parliamentarian, small D Democratic. yeah, they're not in the Constitution, to my knowledge. So it's just part of, like, the Senate rules have been drafted mm-hmm. up and can be adhered to or not. I'm not saying in general that, like, the idea of a parliamentarian is bad, of course. Like, to have some sort of notion of an individual arbiter in the body of the Senate to determine balls and strikes uh, doesn't on paper sound bad. But uh, also, sometimes referees get the call wrong. Right. And that's when the players can step in or so to speak in this metaphor to to try to correct the situation. Mm -hmm. And so just a reminder that we're talking about the minimum wage today and we'll get to 
Universal Basic Income later in the show on Evidence of Design at 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're talking about the latest efforts that point unfavorably to getting a federal minimum wage increase to $15 an hour. Matt, I wanted to direct the question to you here, and this is what we were just about to get at, saying, um, okay, look, this doesn't look favorable. Republicans as a party are morally and intellectually bankrupt. Obviously, I think we should be directing most of our anger towards the part that party for uh, doing harm through every single one of their policies and also their inaction, uh, you know, to this country. We should be directing most of our harm to Republicans, but at the same time, we have these eight Democrats who, in theory, could have voted to overrule the Senate parliamentarian, and then, in theory, could have voted to uh, to have the minimum wage included here. So, my question to you is. To what extent should Democrats do either of the following? Because there are two options here the Democrats could have done in the Senate to get federal minimum wage passed. Option one, they could have voted to overrule the parliamentarian and say, look, they got this call wrong here. We are going to pass this thing anyways because it's worth it for the American people, the hardworking men and women, the American people, to get them money in their pockets for their labor that allows them to make a vaguely livable wage. They could have done that, right? They have the power to do that. The other thing they could do is remove the Senate filibuster. That would mean that you don't have to go through this reconciliation process at all. You could just pass things with a simple majority vote. So my question to you, Matt, is like, should Democrats do that? Should they wield that power? I mean, it seems very clear that they don't have the majority that they need either way. There's too many Democratic... I mean, even just one Democratic senator breaking ranks uh, destroys their majority. And it sounds like Joe Manchin and... Was it Kristen Sinema? Mm-hmm. Are, are opposed entirely to the idea of a $15 minimum wage uh, on principle. And so, like, I don't know necessarily... You know, people... Uh, worry about the filibuster it's like should we get rid of it because every time you sort of set this precedent whenever you're you always have in the back of your mind like someday your party isn't going to be in power anymore and you know are you setting yourself up for uh um you know for for ruin for lack of a better word uh in the future by by getting rid of these sort of measures that make it more difficult for legislation to be passed and the the thing is is that like there's just there's most people serving in the senate shouldn't even be in the senate like there shouldn't be a republican party there shouldn't even the the democratic party as exists shouldn't exist either they're not interested in uh meeting the basic material needs of the people that they uh claim to represent and i think they're all they all have like I, i don't know that'll happen but they uh they they deserve a reckoning. Hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. You know, if if you make the argument that there shouldn't even be a Republican Party or at least the modern Democratic Party as it stands through the through the lens of if we have political parties and governments and politics, we have all of those things. They exist to meet the interests of the people. Then I would agree with you that those those parties, Democrats, Republicans, shouldn't exist because they're not meeting the interests of people. And therefore, they need to have a reckoning. 
we as a country need to have a reckoning where we vote these people out of office, which clearly is has is, is, is now become an ineffective way to affect change overall, right? We see some glimmers of hope here and there, but um, it's clearly the idea that they'll just be voted out of office has been so ineffectual, thanks to gerrymandering, thanks to unlimited dark money in politics, um, thanks to massive disinformation campaigns, the idea that we sort of can control our democracy through like grassroots activism. You know, there are glimmers of hope, Stacey Abrams, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but that's sort of very pessimistic nowadays. I just want to point out that last year we saw what I think has been the most sustained and attended uh, protests in my lifetime in response to the uh, continued killings and murders of uh, black people by police officers. And the only thing that the federal government seems to have done in response to that is, like, get rid of a few military bases that were named after Confederate generals, as if that is, like, what people are upset about. Not even, not even on a federal response, but we haven't seen change on a local level. Exactly. You know, in Rochester, we didn't even see any indictments for officers who murdered Daniel Prude locally. I mean, to be fair, there are some efforts, including locally, to establish uh, mental health response teams, and I believe one has recently been established. But I would agree with both of your general points that, like, the response from our leaders have been moot to meet the needs of those people expressing the desire for actual change, you know, to live human dignity and, and, and whatnot. The feeling and that lives. I get is, like, what does it take, you mm. know? Like, uh, <laughs> man... I, I, this is kind of going off topic, but um, my dad sent me a, a, a Waypo article this week. Washington Post, yeah. And, um, you know, Waypo has their slogan, which is, democracy dies in darkness, which I think is the most asinine <laughs> thing for a newspaper to, to, to just have as its, like, <laughs> raison d'etre. Um, uh, because, like, if you think about it, you know, we had the highest turnout in <laughs> a presidential election it, um uh, just on a sheer number wise ever and and uh in a uh, percentage wise in in several uh decades i believe but still something like 30 to 40 percent of the people didn't even vote yeah and then when you think about all the people who voted for trump which is another like 20 to 30 percent of americans those people voted to kill democracy essentially yeah so like you have uh you have a you have 30 to 40 percent of people living in america who democracy is already dead for them and how can you blame them for feeling that way when for decades we've had all uh, all of our elected rep- representatives have just been pushing austerity politics that don't speak to the needs and uh, uh, interests of regular everyday people. And then the other 20 to 30 percent that voted for Trump think that the only thing that politics serves is owning the libs and and uh, hating the people that I don't like. And, you know, I feel like a lot of uh, people who support Democrats and are, are just liberal diehards probably feel the same way just they have a different idea of who needs to be punished that's really powerful and worth remembering matt that in national elections especially the 2021 where it was the highest voter turnout in history you know thanks to we have the highest population in u.s history but also you know percentages of turnout too is is very very high that literally the literally the majority of americans did not vote for the current president who sits in office. And this happens every election, right? It's just, it just worth pointing out that the majority of Americans literally did not vote for Joe Biden to sit in the Oval Office uh, because literally a slightly less than half, like uh, a, 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 a uh, fingernails 
percentage less of people voted for the other guy to sit in the Oval Office, Donald Trump. And then you had like another fingernail size, like a, a large uh, nail size of people who just didn't vote at all. And so it's just funny that like um, when you look at it that way, yeah, it's it's it's, it's really kind of frightening and scary. And, and, and what does our democracy sort of look like and reflect and come to? It's uh, it's very challenging. It is kind of funny that you're using your nails as, as measuring tools. Um, not sure that that's like... I don't know. I have bigger nails than you. But um, one thing I also want to mention, because this is something I think about all the time, is that we always talk about democracy as if it is the like end all be all. That is what we that's that's what everyone wants for our style of government. And one thing I try to remember is that Republicans, by the sake of their name, uh, don't necessarily want a truly democratic population. You know, they don't necessarily want everyone to vote in order to be representative. Um, This is something we can see, too, in, like, ad campaigns by Turning Point USA, that the United States isn't a democracy, but it's a constitutional republic. Um, And that does really play into the interests of Republican senators who are trying to gerrymander and suppress votes, is that they don't necessarily want a democracy. Um, which does certainly affect the way that they think about the population in a very negative way in, you know, as, as we believe. Yeah. And on that note, I'd like to announce that I will be starting my own new political party called the technocratic oligarchy party. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Are you Jeff Bezos? We believe in free trade. Yeah. (laughs) Ooh, Jeff Bezos. Just come out with, uh, just tell me what you really believe in. All right. (laughs) Well, we're going to, so let's spend the next maybe five or so minutes wrapping up the minimum wage conversation, then we'll transition to universal basic income. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM, WXIR in Rochester, Rochester's Urban Alternative Radio Station. You can give us a call, 585-219-8889. Although we have just recognized and laid forth our sort of worries about the health of our democracy and and constitution here we on the show here we on evidence of design still believe uh, in the following things one of course that the minimum wage should be increased at least to 15 dollars an hour if you work for the current federal minimum wage 725 an hour if you work full-time on that 40 hours a week 52 weeks a year you make fifteen thousand dollars a year pre-tax you can't live off of fifteen thousand dollars a year pre-tax I did a year of service in AmeriCorps, made $4 an hour, uh, can't live off poverty. You know, that's, that's the poverty line. Can't live off the poverty line, can't live off $15,000 a year, literally impossible. So um, unsustainable, inhumane, raise the minimum wage, period. If you raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, you'll make $31,000 a year. Uh, livable, I don't know. Uh, you can, you know, technically you can survive, I suppose, but are you actually living? Are you, is your human dignity being recognized? Can you, you know, get a, get a house, a car, go to college, travel, uh, have health care? No, not really. That You're, is also assuming that you are working 40 hours a week and that your employer is giving you full-time 40 hours a week. Right. And no matter what you're doing, the work that you're doing is worth more than $15 an hour. Right. Like, Companies or your employer needs you more than what they're paying you. And you are being exploited because that's what capitalism does. Right. And we, did, we, did, we gave the example two weeks ago when we covered minimum wage. If you work for a pizza parlor, you make $15 an hour. Let's say a large pizza costs $20 an hour. You make what? 20 to 30 pizzas in an hour. 
do the math, you're getting paid for less than one pizza that you make and sell in an hour, right? Even if you make 20 or 30 of them. So you're, the point of capitalism is that your labor is never being uh, rewarded with your true value. And so uh, the New York Times had an article this week called When Amazon Raises Its Minimum Wage, Local Companies Follow Suit. This came out yesterday as the date of recording, March 5th, and the authors are Ben Castleman and Jim Tankersley. The authors found that uh, Amazon increased its minimum wage to $15 an hour for all positions in 2018. After Amazon did that, it had what's known as a spillover effect where other companies in areas around where Amazon has large amounts of workers, uh, other companies ended up raising their minimum wages too. And it ended up benefiting everyone else in the area. Because obviously if you're someone who works in an area and for someone who's paying you $9 an hour, you can say, well, you know, I'm doing some very similar work. Here is what they do at Amazon, but they get paid $6 more an hour for me. So why don't I go over there? And so other companies end up raising their minimum wage too. This is really promising in that uh, it shows in a very slight way that um, minimum wages can go up. <laughs> you know, it is possible. It's sure. literally possible. I don't know if I would use the word promising in any sentence containing the word Amazon. In it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's lots of critique to be had here about Amazon and we won't get into those just for the sake of time. But, um, the idea is that like minimum wages literally can rise. And here's the most important point. Why I wanted to cite this article is because studies have shown that raising the minimum wage does not cost a significant, noteworthy, important amount of jobs. The conservative argument is always if you raise the minimum wage, employers are going to lay people off because they can't pay people what they're worth. <laughs> and so uh, this study and others have found that you raise the minimum wage, people don't lay people off. You know why? Because you still need workers to do the work. And guess what? If you can't, so here, here's my argument, all right? If you're a small business owner who can't afford to pay someone a living wage, you shouldn't be in business. There's my argument. Give me a call, 585-219-8889 if you disagree with that. Actually, I did just get a message from a listener um, via text and it says, your listener on Southwest at Baltimore Airport also thinks minimum wage should be increased to at least $15 per hour. So thank you from, uh, to our listener from the Baltimore Airport. All right, 585-219-8889. Get at me, bro. If you're a small business owner and you can't afford to pay someone a living wage, you shouldn't be in business, <laughs> okay? Um, or, you sh or you should just do the job yourself and not have workers. I'm willing to say that because people deserve to have a living wage for their labor. And if you can only afford to pay someone $9 an hour, then you're exploiting them. And that's not okay. And so anyways, uh, this is really promising that companies can raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. They can figure out ways to do that and stay in business, and it doesn't cost jobs overall. Uh, I would also like to point out that uh, very often, you know, Jason's calling out uh, small business owners. That's fine um, if he wants to do that. <laughs> I, I have a beef with small business owners. They're, the, they're destroying our economy, man. But, but the people who are, you know, the companies that are, you know, typically exploiting people on a massive scale are these larger companies like Amazon. I mean, Amazon, Jeff Bezos was like, man, I, I, have, I finally have enough money to terraform Mars and I still have all this extra leftover money. I guess I'll raise my minimum wage to $15 at my mega corporation. Yeah. 
No, I, I'm, I'm being half sarcastic here. Yeah, I mean, the problem with our economy is these giant businesses that have made small businesses uh, unsolvable. So totally. Um, something I also wanted to mention that wasn't talked about in this article, but I think is really important, is that Amazon raising its minimum wage and therefore, you know, attracting people and making them think that it's a really good employer, um, I think is is a really effective way of avoiding unionization. Yep. You know, obviously there have been union efforts at Amazon and there are massive, massive campaigns by Amazon to break those unions. Mm-hmm. And this is one way that they can say, look, you know, we offer a decent minimum wage. Um, no questions asked. You know, anyone who works here makes at least $15 an hour. You don't need a union. Right. Uh, and so in some ways, like, I, I think ultimately, like, yeah, it's great that they offer a decent minimum wage to start. But that is a really dangerous tactic in other ways. Yeah, I sort of feel bad now after doing this. Looking like, looking at the time, we we have too many topics to cover in the time that will make me not regret not covering all the points that we want to here. Yeah, so the the point of this is to not say go Amazon, go big business, raising dollar raising minimum wage to $15 an hour is awesome. There are legitimate critiques of doing that from a big business perspective in that it prices out Small business owners, we've covered that, though. Uh, but there's also the argument that big businesses like Amazon um, purposely have positive PR things like raising the minimum wage, minimum wage to $15 an hour uh, when they also bust unions, and the workers should perhaps still be getting paid more than that. Uh, there's also things like biz business, big businesses getting uh, ridiculous tax rebates and uh, evading paying taxes. Um, and, and so there's, there's so much more complication to this to, and the point is, is that there are ways to have people make a livable wage in this country called the United States of America, which is the most advanced, intelligent, and technologically powerful nation and collective of people in the history of the planet, right? We literally have the means to do that. We can do it. We just have to have the political will to make it happen. I think a good point, too, is that Amazon has made this happen in a void where the federal government has not done so. Right. And that is a problem for our federal government. And I think that's what we we think needs to change is that the federal government should be the one doing this to drive the minimum wage up. Amazon should not be the one filling that void. Yeah. Corporations should not have this amount of power. And And this is where I got to the question, Matt, of you earlier saying... Should Democrats overrule the Senate parliamentarian? Should they end the filibuster? In my opinion, yes. Democrats should start wielding power. Democrats should use the power of government to meet people's basic needs. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen? Is that right-wing media will continue to spin lies about everything that happens. Democrats will you know, eventually lose whatever next election they use, lose. And Republicans will just not give a crap about anything at all with morals or intelligence or integrity and just continue to, 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 to burn the planet and, and get us all killed eventually. Um, and we just need to start wielding the power of the federal government to get people to realize, oh, it, like the sky literally won't fall if we do some of these things, right? In fact, our lives will actually get better. And, and how will it get better? Let's perhaps turn our attention now to the other half of our show, which is universal basic income. Well, I just want to say real quick, uh, uh, you know, 
my opinion, uh, give up on politics, you know, tell your yeah. mom to turn off CNN and uh, get an Amazon Prime membership. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds really promising. Just give it all up. Bare your neck. Hey, folks. This is Evidence of Design. I'm 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Matt, do you want to introduce the minimal or the universal basic income part of our show today sure so this was actually a this was actually the from the WEPA article i was talking about earlier um that my dad sent me earlier this week and um in stockton california they've had this program now for a few years i think since 2017 or 2018 where they were basically just giving 500 dollars a month unconditionally to 125 people who live in census tracts or at below the city's median household income. And they essentially found that the people who received these benefits, they had uh, a greater chance of finding full-time employment and being more productive. Their well-being was better. They didn't have, and their stress was lower. They didn't have any of the sort of uh, uh, detriments to their health that has been noted in people who live at or below the poverty line. Uh, They paid off their debt, and uh, the money was not spent on drugs and alcohol. (laughs) So (laughs) I I think we can say that um, uh, all of the traditional arguments that people make when they say you just can't give money away to people for no reason, uh, they've been thrown out the window by the study, and it's time that we move on to our uh, post-singularity society (laughs) where (laughs) we all have downloaded our brains into the matrix. and uh, (laughs) Yeah. Dude, when I got my COVID-19 vaccine, I asked if they could give me the one with the 5G chips in it so uh, Bill Gates could track me. Oh, yeah? What I don't know what it has anything to do with what we're talking about, but what I'm trying to say is I completely agree with your idea to uh, abandon politics and subscribe to Amazon Prime <laughs> <laughs> and get your 5G chip installed with your <laughs> COVID-19 yeah. vaccine. Oh, man. Just kidding, Matt. This is really, really promising that that there's this uh, universal basic income has gotten more attention recently thanks to folks uh, like Andrew Yang capitalizing it on the national stage. Of course, though, there have been decades of people on a grassroots level and other levels in our society pushing for this. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, back in the 1960s, pushed for a universal basic income platform. Uh, I mean... Living in America, Jason, and we love our tech entrepreneurs. Yes. And so <laughs> this has been around, just like increasing the minimum wage, it's been around. We, we don't want to come off as like, oh, thank you, saviors. Thank you, elected leaders and potential elected leaders for doing this for us. There have been grassroots folks doing this work all the time and continue to do it right now. People whose names we don't know because they don't get the coverage they should. But anyways, um, this uh, so calls to increase the to have universal basic income have gained more steam recently. There was the study in Stockton, California, five hundred dollars a month, unconditional, for those in census tracts who live at or below the city's median household income. Uh, Stockton, California. I just want to point out where uh, uh, super influential indie rock band Pavement is from. <laughs> Very good band. <laughs> And uh, there were some benefits, lots of benefits from this initiative. People's employment and productivity increased. Dude, I, so I thought that if people get free money, they wouldn't go to work anymore. That's what I was told by people in power. So I'm confused. Why is there cognitive dissonance going on here? where people got free unconditional money and they actually worked harder and were more productive and got higher employment why did they not get lazier and stupider because we gave them free money to disincentivize them from being hard-working americans 
I was think it because, because it's uh, not how it works. Oh. Was it because uh, Ronald Reagan was actually just a bad president and an even worse actor made a bunch of <laughs> terrible movies <laughs> with a monkey sidekick and didn't know anything about politics and how people work? <laughs> I think Ronald Reagan falls in this story somewhere. But, yeah, so uh, sarcasm aside, so it, it turns out that uh, human beings aren't inherently lazy and stupid and that if you actually give them money that allows them to like meet their material needs in this capitalist society they won't just like sit at home all day doing drugs i want to tell you something (laughs) now anybody who has ever spent any time unemployed will understand this immediately but if you've had the the fortune of being employed all your life and, and and relatively well off being unemployed is incredibly boring and people i think on a basic like just instinctual level they need something to occupy their time they need to find meaning and productivity in themselves and so people aren't just gonna not work you can't just stay home all day playing video games i mean i can (laughs) (laughs) yeah me too (laughs) but like but don't give us the minimum wage we're not i mean the universe we're not talking about us here (laughs) we're 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 just we're just like slugs that (laughs) crawl out of our (laughs) holes in the ground to come on this radio show (laughs) No, <laughs> so give everyone else the universal basic income, not us, because we're clearly not going to live up to our own standards. Yeah, you know, kidding again. Matt, you're totally right. Um, I, I don't buy the argument at all that if you give people a living wage or universal basic income, they won't go to work. This this study, at least this this one study, proves that. I'm actually, people. you know, I'm going to jump in here and back this up with another study. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a different universal basic income study that is much older uh, from the 1970s and happened in Canada. So we might say, you know, we're Americans, this doesn't apply to us. Um, But I think it's actually a really good example. Uh, This is called the Mincom experiment. So it was in Manitoba, um, which is in sort of like central Western Canada, for those of you who don't know the geography of Canada. Uh, and basically, there was a an experiment to uh, which took a slightly different route. Instead of giving people a fixed amount, it uh, looked at how much people require, uh, or what a what a an average family in uh, this town requires, and it guaranteed an annual income instead of a monthly income. So it guaranteed that the families would need at least 16,000 Canadian dollars a year. Again, this is 1974, and that is uh, more than the U.S. minimum wage gets you right now. That aside, uh, it guaranteed an annual income of 16,000 Canadian dollars. So anyone who was making under that could apply monthly to get a check that would bring them up to that amount. Uh, So again, not exactly a fixed income. And this was inspired because there were all different kinds of social reforms throughout Canada in the 60s and 70s, including universal health insurance, which occurred in 1972 in Canada. So this was shortly following the effects of universal health insurance. Um, Unfortunately, it was cut off in 1979 because of the oil crisis. And actually, the problem was that more people started needing the extra financial assistance and they didn't have the money for it. So they had to stop. Uh, But some of the effects were actually quite similar. One of the really striking effects was the decrease 
in hospitalizations by eight and a half percent, which is over four years. That's a huge decrease because there were fewer alcohol related accidents and hospitalizations due to mental health issues. And there were like fewer visits to family physicians. People were actually able to take care of their health on a proactive level instead of waiting reactively because they were able to afford it. And obviously having universal health insurance having been passed two years before, I'm sure didn't hurt. And a lot more students completed high school. So obviously uh, in the United States as well, students can work at 16. And in this rural Canadian town of about 10,000 people, that was like five hours from Winnipeg, quite isolated. Uh, Many, many students would leave school at 16 to go get a job on a farm or the one factory in town. And having the guaranteed income allowed families to support their children for another two years so that they could get their high school education and finish before they were going to work. It also had the same uh, effect of showing that it doesn't discourage people from working, which, as you said, Jason, is one of the main concerns that politicians have is that people will just be like, oh, you know, I have this guaranteed income. I'm not going to work. And Matt, I agree because I've also spent time unemployed. It gets really boring and people want to have something to do. They also want to be well compensated for it. Besides Matt and I. Yeah. Right, besides Matt and Jason. Um, But in this study, employment rates didn't change over the four years that people received income. So just because they were receiving it, this ended up being more of a supplement and like a safety net. We'll bring that term in here. uh, That allowed people to just, you know, pay off their debts, keep their kids in school, and do the really basic things that we should all be able to do in an industrialized and, you know, a good society. Yeah, that just brings up another thought I had, which is like the idea that's thrown around that, you know, if people just have too much money on their hands, they're going to go nuts and like just get, just buy cocaine and hookers and stuff. And it's just like yachts. And yachts. And uh, it's like, no, no, actually, it's not that. um, Maybe the reason why we have such a a, a drug epidemic epidemic in this country is because of the reason that there's so many people who are just self-medicating the fact that they understand on some instinctual level that their basic humanity is not being recognized and that the only thing that can get them through a a lonely and uh, alienated existence is to uh, imbibe in drugs and alcohol. Maybe that's the reason why. And if you... Like living in economic precarity is its own sort of living hell. Yeah. I mean, and also we know that having a lot of money, uh, the the ultra millionaires and billionaires already do that stuff to like buy yachts and like have a secret cabal of like, um, I'm not talking about QAnon pedophilia here. I'm talking about like, what was that scandal? The the Jeffrey Epstein thing. Right. Where there was all these wealthy people like, you know, uh, trafficking uh, Miners. young m- minors around to yeah so uh, you know that that stuff already exists with the wealthy uh, parentheses too uh, but certainly not to the extent w- w- with the poor I would say and yeah totally so your point of um, you know why is there so much uh, sort of devastation mental devastation among and, and malaise among societies because of I think the economic alienation and precarity and and we see that with uh, deaths of despair. We've covered that notion on the show before, but there's research 
I forgot their names, research from a few professors recently called Deaths of Despair, and that's the increase in mortality, particularly they studied among um, white men, uh, showing that there are, as- there are groups of folks in our society who are increasingly being left behind by the economy. And this, of course, also applies to, to minorities. It's applied to them for much longer in this nation. But also including, uh, you know, it, it transcends both uh, racial and gender bounds to include uh, to all of those who occupy the lesser classes in America, which is the vast majority of people. So I, I guess I just want to tie these two ideas together. So we've talked about minimum wage, we've talked about universal basic income, and obviously those are two different ideas. But I think that they come. And I know that's why we're presenting them together is they come to the same thing, which is that people, when they have their basic needs met, are still going to be productive and useful members of society. Maybe that's not our point because, you know, productivity is not the main issue here. But, you know, we believe that we should provide people their basic needs because we're able to as a nation right now. Um, We have a lot more money than a lot of other countries and it's not being used in a very uh, respectful, not in a way that respects human dignity and that should change. Yeah, absolutely. So there's so many layers to this, Mary, you're right, in terms of connecting the minimum wage to the universal basic income. It gets to the idea that as human beings, we deserve to have our material needs met. And not only do we deserve that, but now, practically, we have the power to do that, whether it's through things like raising the minimum wage or providing universal basic income or, uh, you know, a, a minimum annual income, as you pointed out with this, with this program in Canada, or provi- providing universal health care or gu- guaranteeing housing as a human right. There's all of these things that we d- deserve morally, but also practically can do. But here's the thing, too, is that if we do some of these things, it is a rising tide that lifts all boats. For instance, there are study after study after study showing that our overall economy in the United States suffers because of our levels of economic inequality. People do not have the ability to buy things to meet their basic needs, which usually fuels the American economy. For instance, the millennial generation, not having as many kids, not buying houses. They don't have the means to do that. And so the whole economy struggles. For instance, if you're a small business owner and you are struggling to fend off, you know, you're struggling to survive thanks to the threats posed by giant corporations like Amazon, you will likely have more local people buy your products if they have the means to get to you, so if there's mass transportation, or if they have the money to buy a car, and they're likely to buy your products, which might be a few dollars more than what they can get on Amazon, if they have the money to do that. So local economies will thrive. We will be smarter as a population if people have the means to go to college and not be perpetually in debt because of it. Or even just to finish high school and not drop out at 16 so they can work to support their family. Right. And that is more people, the more intelligent our society is, the better we are all are because we'll be producing more jobs and services and providing better cures for cancer, if cures at all. Like it's just, there's so many, there's no net negative for giving people the means to live. 
There's no net be- negative. It's only beneficial for everyone, right? And that's why we argue so unpassionately on the show that these things should happen. Raising the minimum wage, universal basic income, guaranteed health care, guaranteed housing. Because it helps everyone, you know? It's not about pitting one class of people versus another or one political party versus another or one race versus another or one gender versus another. It helps everyone. And we can do these things while acknowledging the myriad ways where these ostensible conflicts and conflict points arise, whether it's black versus white, male versus female, Republican versus Democrat, 1% versus 99%, right? We, we can have the space as a civil society to have these conversations that need to be pointed out while still acknowledging that we can get to a place where everyone benefits. Absolutely. Now what do we talk about for the next three minutes? Well, I, I think we kind of need to wrap up. Oh, I guess we could do that. Uh, so, folks, hope you enjoyed joining us on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR talking about raising the minimum wage and universal basic income today good news senator bernie sanders is still alive and he still has power and he said via twitter after the vote this week by all 50 republican senators and eight democratic senators not to overrule the senate parliamentarian to effectively raise the minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour for 32 million americans by 2025 he said via twitter quote if any senator believes this is the last time they will cast a vote on whether or not to raise to give a raise to 32 million Americans, they are sorely mistaken. We're going to keep bringing it up and we're going to get it done because it is what the American people demand and need. Jason, your hands are supposed to be over your head when you uh, say that. If any senator believes this is the last time, they will cast a vote. Uh, so that's what Senator Bernie Sanders said. Glad to hear that there are people out there still bringing the fight just like we are in Evidence of Design. Matt, you and I got a lot of video games to play after the show. Hopefully other people will do the work because we yeah. sure as heck ain't doing I, it, right? I have a full <laughs> schedule. <so. Yeah. laughs> Thanks also to everyone out there in society who uh, do fight the you know do fight the good fight as well. There's tons of people on the ground in Rochester fighting the good fight too and, and uh, nationally. Part of great organizations, great people taking times out of their busy, difficult lives to try to advocate for positive changes for, for every member of the society. Good on them. Good on you. Good on us. With that, you can check out our past episodes on Evidence of Design anywhere you get your podcasts. I won't name the big names of those big tech companies because you already know them. Also, you can find us on YouTube by searching for the Evidence of Design YouTube channel. Stay in touch with us throughout the week at Radio EOD. That's our social media handles. And email us, radioeod at gmail.com. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined by my good friends and co-hosts. Matt Treadwell. So long. And Mary Lawrence. Stay sane. Be well. Be safe. Take care. And bye-bye.